Hello and welcome to the New Hope Church podcast. Whether you're a member of our church family, either in person or online, or just checking us out for the first time, we believe that you belong here at New Hope Church. You can check New Hope Church out online at newhopechurch.tv, and we would love to connect with you on social media. Our tag is at New Hope Church TV on Instagram and on Facebook. You can also find videos of our sermons on our YouTube page. We're currently in our marriage bootcamp series where we are drilling down on some basic training for our marriages. We promise Pastor Tim is not going to yell in your face today, but we will be digging into God's Word and learning the fundamentals of what it takes to make a marriage that can stand the battles of time. So if you're thinking about getting married, you're newlywed, or you've been married for a long time, we hope you join us for some basic training in our series, Marriage Bootcamp. Well, I want to welcome you to New Hope Church. Those of you at the Friendswood campus, the Alvin campus, the Webster campus, those of you right here at the 288 campus, those of you watching online, we are so glad that you made the decision to worship God. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so excited to be able to announce that next week we're kicking off a brand new lesson series entitled His Mighty Strength. Now, this series is based on a book written by Pastor Randy Frazee in which he details his own struggle with depression. More importantly, he details how he was able to overcome depression with God's help. And I just believe that this series is going to be good for so many of us. But if you've been struggling with loneliness or anxiety or just lost your joy, you definitely want to be here. Or maybe you know somebody that's struggling emotionally. I would encourage you to invite them to be here next week as we kick off this series. By the way, Pastor Randy is going to be here teaching for us. He's going to do the very first lesson. So you definitely want to be back for that. Well, if, uh, yeah. Well, if you are new, we are wrapping up a series of talks called Marriage Boot Camp. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at God's Word, and we've been picking up spiritual weapons that can help us overcome the battles that we face in marriage. In week one, we talked about the battle of reality. In week two, we discussed the battle of selfishness. Then last week, we talked about the battle of culture. And today, we're going to be looking at the fourth battle that all married couples face. That would be the battle of conflict. And because we're talking about conflict in the context of marriage, I've entitled today's message, Friendly Fire. Now, this phrase, Friendly Fire, it's a military term used to describe what happens when troops in the same army fire at one another. And while military strategists never intentionally take aim at soldiers marching under the same banner, it does happen occasionally in war. Sadly, the consequences can be deadly. So you may be wondering, what does friendly fire have to do with our marriages? Well, when a man and woman stand before God, when they stand before family and friends on their wedding day to express their love for one another and declare vows of commitment and holy matrimony, I'm pretty sure that neither one of them is thinking, I can't wait to get married so that my spouse can be upset with me all the time, okay? I'm pretty sure that's not what they're thinking. You know, as they're on stage and they've got the tux and the white dress, they're not thinking, I can't wait to get married so that we can argue about the finances every month. No, no, nobody thinks that on their wedding day, but when the honeymoon stage enters the reality stage, it opens the door for all kinds of conflict and friendly fire. 
Now, our main text comes from the book of 2 Samuel, and so if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 6, or if you prefer, you can go ahead and pull up your listening guide on your phone or digital device. But while you are getting ready for the lesson, I want to share with you a verse, all right? We have been looking at one or two verses from our forward operating base each and every week, which is 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13 is the great love chapter of the Bible. And the reason that we've been starting there is because God wants our marriages to be defined by Christ-like love. And 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us over and over again exactly what love is and exactly what love is not. And so with that in mind, we're going to focus on one verse from 1 Corinthians 13 today. We're going to be at the end of verse 5. I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to read the highlighted words out loud with me. Okay, here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, second part of verse 5. It says this, love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I love this verse because it's a powerful reminder that whether you are single or married, there is no room for friendly fire in any relationship. But I want you to notice something about this verse. I want you to notice what it does not say. It does not say that love is never angered. It does not say that love is never wronged. Instead, what does it say? It says love is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrong. In other words, no matter how good your relationships might be, no matter how good your marriage is, there's always the potential for conflict. There's always the potential for friendly fire. So what I want to do right up front is I want to share with you two observations about conflict. These are two facts about fighting, and if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. The first fact would be this, all couples fight. This is the first fight fact, all couples fight. Now, one of the things I do before officiating any wedding, I like to meet with the couple and I want to talk about a couple of things. First, I want to talk about the details of the ceremony because you've got to get the ceremony right. But I also want to talk to them about what their future relationship is going to be like because dating is not the same thing as marriage. And so oftentimes what I'll do when I'm sitting down with couples who want to be married is I'll ask them this question. What, what do you think it's going to take to have a successful marriage? What skills do you think you're going to need to go the distance in your marriage relationship? Of course, they usually come up with all the standard answers. You've probably said these, thought these, heard these before, but they will say things like this. Well, we need to respect one another. And that's, that's absolutely true. We, we need to have fun together. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's right on target as well. We need to communicate well with one another. Yes, that's good stuff. Or they'll say we need to meet one another's needs. All, all of those responses, all of those answers are accurate and good and they are right. But I've just noticed the one thing that I never hear, the, the one thing that couples tell me that, that never tell me that they have to work on is this. We, we need to work on our fighting skills, okay? We need, to, we need to work on our fight game. Nobody ever says that. And this makes sense because when you're dating, you're trying to put your best foot forward, right? You're trying to be as accommodating as you possibly can be. You're not trying to stir the pot. By the way, this is just for free. But if you're in a dating relationship and you're fighting all the time, that person might not be good for you, okay? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Because usually when we're dating, we aren't trying to fight. But once you get married. Those of us who've been around the block a few times, you know what we have learned? 
that given the right circumstances and given the right amount of time that we are capable of fighting about almost anything and everything. All the married people said. In fact, let me illustrate this point for you. Uh, this week, I read an article entitled 73 Ridiculous Stupid Things That Couples Fight About, okay? You didn't even know there were that many, but there are, okay? 73 Ridiculous Stupid Things Couples Fight About. I'm not going to give you all 73. I'm just going to give you five, but here's the deal. If you've ever fought, argued, or had a heated discussion about any of these ridiculous things, I just want you to own it today, okay? We're in church. We can, we can be honest with one another. So I need you to own it. So you, you, ready, you ready to do this? Okay, okay, good, good. First service didn't say a word, okay? So you guys are obviously more spiritual than them. But here's, here's, here's the list. Here's the list, all right? So uh, one ridiculous thing that couples fight about would be food, would be food. And this, this, this fight always starts with a very simple, simple question. Here it is. What's, what are we eating for dinner? That's the question, right? <laughs> and so there's a little discussion that happens. Well, I don't care. I'll eat anything. The other person says, well, I don't care. Why don't you decide? This goes back and forth a few times. Finally, somebody does decide. We're having pizza tonight, to which the other person promptly says, uh, anything but pizza, right? You guys know. You guys know. And then the, the, the fight is on. There's a, so by show of hands, how many of you ever had this fight? Okay, oh yeah, get them up. Just own it, own it. All right, here's another ridiculous thing that couples fight about. The dishwasher, uh, more specifically how you load the dishwasher. I did not know this before I got married, but apparently there's a right and a wrong way to load the dishwasher. And so uh, by show of hands, how many of you have had this argument before? Anybody, anybody? Okay, good. Hey, I can solve your problem. I can, I can, I can just stop doing the dishes. Okay, that's, that's what you do there. All right, here's another ridiculous thing that couples fight about. Cuddling, cuddling. That's kind of surprising, right? This is surprising. Cuddling, really? But this is a serious, serious problem at the Davis house, okay? I'm just, I'm letting you, this is a serious problem because my wife, Irene, can't keep her hands off of me, you know? You know I mean, that, <laughs> actually, neither one of us can. We're, we're cuddlers, okay? But not, every, not everybody, I'm finding this out, not everybody's a cuddler, so where are my cuddle bunnies, cuddle bunnies, all of our campuses? Okay, how about this? How many of you need as much space as possible on the couch? All, all right, okay, very good. Here's another ridiculous thing that couples fight over, board games, board games. I hate to admit this, but I am that guy, okay? I will fight you over some Monopoly. It's just going... You, you better play by the rules. Okay, so I'm that guy, uh, so we just don't play board games at my house anymore. But uh, how many of you have had this argument, disagreement? Anybody? Anybody? A few of you? Okay, very good. And then another ridiculous thing, I can't believe this, couples fight over it, would be toilet paper. Okay, toilet paper. Uh, not that we need toilet paper, right, because every, you know, we all understand. But uh, what, we, what we fight about is the way that the toilet paper gets installed on the spool. That's, that's how... So by show of hands, how many of you have ever had that argument at your house? All right, very good. Appreciate you guys being honest, but those of us who are close to God, we all know that the toilet paper falls over the front, not, not the back, right? <laughs> uh, take that, Irene. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you guys are going to get me in trouble. Okay. So th this was just for fun, but my point is we're, we're good at that. We fight about anything and everything. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are like, uh, uh, Pastor, 
why, why did you bring this up today, okay? Because things were, were starting to calm down at my house, okay? Things were starting to run smooth, and now you've got this list on the screen, and we're probably going to have this argument in the car on the way home. Thank you very much. Well, if that's you, I'm sorry, uh, but I promise by the end of today's lesson, we're going to give you some tools to help, okay? But that does bring us to the second fight fact. Here it is. What couples fight about is not as important as how couples fight. Yeah, yeah, all, all couples do fight, but what couples fight about is not as important as how couples fight. Now, for a long time, experts believed that couples who fought the most would be the least satisfied in their marriage. However, new research reveals that couples in good relationships get frustrated with their spouses just as often as couples in bad relationships. But here's the difference. Happy couples don't fight the same way that miserable couples do. Okay, happy couples and miserable couples, they fight differently. What, what, what do I mean by that? Well, Dr. John Gottman, who has studied married couples for over four decades, he believes that he can tell whether or not a couple's relationship will survive for the long haul just by watching them fight for three minutes. Not 13 minutes, not 30 minutes, just three minutes. Within 180 seconds, he can tell whether or not a couple will divorce just by the way that they handle conflict with one another. So what is he looking for? Well, there are four bad fighting habits that he's looking for. I'm going to put them on the screen. Here they are. He's looking for criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. In fact, he calls these the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if you know anything about eschatology, then you know that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are very, very scary. But here's what's scary to me. If we were to take inventory, if we were to go around the entire room, I bet that every single one of us would say, yep, I'm guilty of at least one of those, if not all four of those. But here, here's, here's the problem. When I don't know how to fight, when I don't know how to fight fair, when this is all I've got, this is how I interact with my spouse anytime we have conflict, it can lead to serious, serious damage in our relationships. In fact, I want to go to our text today. That would be 2 Samuel chapter 6. And in our, in our text, we actually find a couple that's been married for a little while. Their names are David and Michael, however, before I read, I want to give you a little background for David and Michael, okay? Uh, their relationship actually began shortly after David uh, defeats Goliath. David kills Goliath. He's invited to go live in the king's palace. And at the time, the king of Israel was a man named Saul. Saul just happened to have a daughter named Michael. Michael and David are roughly the same age. And so when this shepherd boy shows up who can sing and slay giants, she's smitten with him. You know, she's like, woo, woo, I'm ready to date that guy. Well, apparently David's interested in her as well. And it doesn't take long before there is a wedding. They get married. But if you fast forward several years, we find out that Michael's father, Saul, has been killed in battle. David has been anointed as the king, and Michael has taken her rightful place next to David on the throne as queen. But conflict is just around the corner, which brings us to our main text. Second Samuel chapter 6, starting with verse 14, says this, wearing a linen ephod. Everybody say ephod. Very good. I want you to circle that underline that, put a star by that, take a mental note because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. But wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. So far, so good, right? 
But as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she what? She despised him in her heart. Now, it's important to note that the Ark of the Lord was a very, very important piece of furniture to the Israelite nation. It was a golden box that sat in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, but it was so much more than a piece of furniture. It was the mercy seat of God, meaning the presence and the power of God was with the Ark of the Lord. In fact, the Israelites would carry the Ark of the Lord into battle with them and use it as a weapon. And if you ever saw the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you know it was the Ark of the Covenant that melted the face off of all the Nazis. By the way, that's not a true story, okay? Raiders of the Lost Ark is fiction, but the Ark of the Lord is a real piece of furniture. Unfortunately, the Israelites lost it in a battle to the Philistines, but in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we find out that David got it back, and he's actually returning the Ark of the Lord to the city of Jerusalem. He's returning it to its rightful place, and so there is a party going on in Jerusalem, okay? Everybody's excited. Everybody's happy. People are dancing. They're worshiping, and they are praising the Lord. That is, with the exception of of one person. Care, care to guess who that was? Well, we read about it just a minute ago. It was David's wife, Michael. She's not very happy. She's not excited for the city. She's not excited for David. Instead, the text tells us what? That she despised him in her heart. So, so what, what's, what's the big deal here? I mean, what's going on here? Why is she so upset? I, I mean, is she upset at David's dance moves? I mean, maybe, you know, maybe he didn't, you know, maybe he, maybe he couldn't dance. Maybe he said he was going to be home early from work that day and he was coming home. I mean, what, what's she so upset about? Well, we, we don't know yet. We just know that mama ain't happy, right? I mean, she ain't happy. And, and we're about to find out that David's going to be on the receiving end of some friendly fire. So let's pick back up in verse 20. It says this, when David returned home to bless his household. Let, let me reread that for emphasis. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. <laughs> now, when you read it, you got to roll your neck, you got to snap your neck just a little bit, okay? That's, that's the tone of the text, all right? So, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. So let, let me set the scene for you. So, so, so David's excited. He's been celebrating all day, and, and he can't wait to get home. He, he wants to get home, and he wants to bless his wife. He wants to celebrate with his wife. He wants to give her a big hug and a big kiss. But before he can do any of that, what does she do? She comes rolling out of the house, and she begins to let him have it right there in the street in front of everybody. And the reason that she's so upset is because in her mind, David had spent the whole afternoon being immodest. What, what do I mean by that? Well, do you remember that word I had you say out loud, that word ephod? Well, an ephod is actually an undergarment, okay? It would have been like a onesie for adults. This was the king's underwear, okay? And so Michael's upset because in her mind, the king's been running around the city and he's been showing off a little bit too much skin, okay? So she's upset about this. And when I first read the story, I thought, well, maybe she's got a point here, okay? Because there's just certain things that husbands and wives should share together, things that we should keep behind closed doors. So maybe she's got a point, but, but here's the problem. Her approach is terrible. Her, her timing is terrible. David shows up. He's ready to bless her, 
But what does she do? She just tears, tears him up one side and down the other. So how would David respond to his wife, Michael? Probably with love and compassion. Check out verse 21. Then David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, I'll have you know, <laughs> who chose me rather than your father by the by or anyone else from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. And I will celebrate before the Lord. In fact, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of earlier, I will be held in high honor. So what does David do? D David, David does not apologize, right? He doesn't apologize. He doesn't say, oh, 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 oh babe, babe, <laughs> my bad. I'm sorry about that. Should I not have done that? I mean, I'll keep that in mind next time. I'm so sorry. We'll, we'll let that go. No, no, no. David doesn't do that. What does he do? He gets defensive, right? He starts to justify his actions, right? And then, then he gives her a little piece of his mind. He says, listen up, Michael. I don't know if you realize this or not, but God made me the king over the nation of Israel, and I'm pretty sure that includes my own household. And let me just tell you something. The king going to do what the king going to do. Drop the mic right there. You, you guys aren't reading your Bible the right way. You got to read it like you got to you got to read it like this. Okay. Now, now let me ask ask you a question. We just got a front row seat to one of the best fights in the Bible. Okay. We just got a front row seat to a terrible argument between a married couple. And so let me ask you this question: Who won the fight? Who won the fight? Well, don't say don't, don't say anything. I can, I can feel you taking sides already. So, some of you might be like, well, well, Michael won the fight because she wasn't afraid to let the king know what she was. He gave, she gave him a piece of her mind. So, so Michael, won, he shouldn't have been running around the streets in his underwear anyway. So she won the fight. So other, others, others of you are like, ah, 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 not so fast. I think David won the fight because he's the king. And, and we can see that he's not going to take anything from anyone, in, in particular, not somebody from his own household. So David won the fight. But I would argue that neither one of them won the fight. And the reason I say this is because that's what Scripture tells us. Check out 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23. It says, And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us why. She never had any children, but you don't have to be a marriage counselor to know what happened. The four horsemen of the apocalypse happened. That's what happened, right? There was criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt all throughout this story. Sadly, because both David and Michael thought they were right, neither one of them were willing to give an inch, meaning they never resolved the conflict, and as a result, they probably res resented one another the rest of their lives, which leads me to the key thought for today's message. If you don't hear anything else, I need you to catch this. Sometimes you can win the fight and lose the relationship. So sometimes you can win the fight and lose the relationship. By the way, this is just my opinion, but I believe that if David and Michael could have somehow resolved their differences, there never would have been a story about Bathsheba later on. I'm not 100% certain of that, can't be 100% sure, but I believe that if these two could have just figured out a way to work out their differences, that story would have never happened. Regardless, one thing that I do appreciate about the Bible is that the fact that it is just so raw. 
I mean, these, these aren't fairy tales with happy endings. These are real people with real problems, just like the ones that you and I face every single day. And just like I don't think that David's story had to end the way it did, praise God, I don't think that your story has to end in defeat either. Instead, I believe that God offers some powerful strategies to overcome the friendly fire in your marriage. And so for the remainder of our time, what I want to do is give you three practical steps to fight the battle of conflict in your marriage relationships. You can consider this God's battle plan for resolution, but this would be the first step, letter A. If I'm going to overcome the battle of conflict, i got to remember who the real enemy is. It starts by remembering who the real enemy is. Now, at the beginning of the lesson, I gave you a definition for friendly fire. I said that friendly fire happens when uh, troops from the same army attack one another. What I did not tell you is that it's always, 100% of the time, it's always a case of mistaken identity. In other words, friendly fire happens when one military unit falsely assumes that their allies are their enemy. And the same thing can happen in our marriages. It's possible to see your spouse as your enemy, but let me remind you, your spouse is not the enemy in your relationship. How, how do I know? Well, check out what Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our fight is not against our spouse. Instead, it, it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I don't want to freak anybody out today, but according to Scripture, we have a real enemy, and his plan is to destroy everything that God is trying to do in your life, including your marriage. And one of his greatest strategies is to convince you that your spouse is the enemy. And the way that he does it is by filling your mind with negative thoughts toward them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Someone's thinks something like this, I can't believe she's going to bed early again. Doesn't she care about us? Doesn't she know my needs? Another one might be, I can't, I can't believe he didn't take out the trash again. Doesn't he know it when I hate the trash being in the house left? I bet he did that on purpose. Now, if we're honest, married people, we've all had thoughts like that and probably some that are a whole lot worse. So let me ask you something. Where do those thoughts come from? Well, I'll tell you where they come from. They come from the father of lies. And ultimately, what he is trying to do is turn you and your spouse against each other. His goal is to turn allies into enemies. But listen to me, men, your wife is not the enemy. Ladies, your husband is not the enemy. And the sooner you get to a place where you recognize who the real enemy is, the sooner you can stop fighting against your mate and start fighting for your marriage. You can stop fighting against your spouse and begin to fight for one another, but you've got to recognize who the enemy is, which brings us to the second step to overcome conflict. Here it is, letter B. We've got to attack the problem, not the person. We've got to attack the problem, not the person. I have a uh, book on marriage called Every Marriage is a Fixer Upper. And I, I kind of like that title, Every, Every Marriage is a Fixer Upper. And in, in this book, it talks about the two main ways that people resolve their differences or the two main ways that people handle conflict. Most of us fall into one of two categories. I'm going to give you those categories right now. Most of us are either stuffers or huffers. Okay, we're either stuffers 
or huffers. What, what do I mean by that? Well, when stuffers get upset, usually the last person to find out is their spouse. That's because stuffers don't say or do anything. They just stuff all of their emotions deep down inside, and they give the other person the silent treatment because that'll teach them every single time, right? But you know that this person's not happy. In fact, if you go to that person and you say, uh, I think something might be wrong. You okay? What, what will their response be? Yes, I'm, I'm fine. Everything's perfectly fine. Say, well, uh, you don't look like everything's fine. You sure that you're fine? Yes, I'm perfectly fine. Why do they do that? Because they're stuffing it all deep down inside. They don't want anything to come out. Then at the opposite end of the spectrum, what do we got? We got, we got the huffers, right? And when they're upset, everybody knows about it because they stomp around the house, they slam doors, and they just begin to yell at anybody who might be in close proximity to them. And even though the huffers feel good after they've released all of this emotional energy, everybody else ends up feeling bad in the house, right? That's usually how it goes. Now, again, all of us have our own unique way of processing emotions and dealing with our frustrations, but all the stuffing and huffing in the world won't help the situation. That's because stuffing and huffing is always focused in the wrong direction. You see, as long as I'm attacking the person, I will never be able to deal with the problem. As long as all of my emotions are, are directed at the person, we will never be able to resolve our differences and get past the problem, which is why the Bible, whether you stuff or huff, gives some very practical advice for what to do with your emotions when you're upset. I'm going to show them to you. If, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, it says this. It says, in your anger, do not what? Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, I grew up a pastor's kid. I've been in church a long time. I've heard a lot of sermons on this passage. I've heard a lot of pastors say that what this passage means is that you should never, ever, never, ever, never, ever go to bed angry. Instead, you should stay up as long as you can and resolve your differences, okay? And while I think that that is good in theory, I don't always think that that is good in practice. The reason I say that is because some of us would be up all night. Some of us might even be up several days. And so I think sometimes the, the best thing that you can do for your marriage is just go take a nap, all right? Just go to bed, get up, and try and attack it the next day. And so when I read this verse, I tend to think that the real meaning of the verse is this right here, that we never let our hurts take us to a place where we hurt the ones we love. We, we, we never let our hurts take us to a place where we hurt the ones we love. In other words, we don't let our emotions get the best of us. We don't let our emotions get the best of the situation. We don't, we don't stew on it. We don't roll it over and over and over and over again in our minds. We don't blow up on people. We don't kick the dog, right? Instead, we do something different. We acknowledge that there's a problem. We acknowledge that there is conflict. And then what we do is we go to the person. We go to the person and we say, hey, listen, there is a problem that we need to resolve. There, there's a problem that we need to talk out. And, and, and I think we need to find a place where we can do this calmly and coolly. We need to do this in a way where we can speak the truth of love, uh, truth and love to one another. And if we can't, we need to start over and go to our separate corners and, tr and try again. But, but ultimately, somebody needs to, to go to the other person and say, we, 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 gotta, talk, we gotta talk about this. We gotta take the problem, not the person, okay? All right, that leads us to the final step that we got to take, and that would be letter C. Here it is. We got to extend lots of forgiveness. We're going to overcome conflict in our marriages. We got to extend lots and lots 
and lots of forgiveness. I, uh, I tell people this all the time, but I think one of the reasons that my relationship with Irene works so well is because uh, I'm pretty good at saying I'm sorry, and Irene is pretty good at saying all is forgiven. I'm good at saying I'm sorry. Irene's good at saying all is forgiven. Now, when I was growing up, my, my parents would fight. They would have arguments and disagreements, and I would hear them apologize to one another quite frequently. You know, I, I, I'm sorry, but usually that apology was, was followed by, by words that sounded something like this. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And I think my parents had good intentions, but the truth is things aren't always okay, and the person who, who hurt the other person really should worry about how their behaviors affect those around them. That's why I love that phrase, all is forgiven. You see, when we say those three words, all is forgiven, two very important things happen. First thing that happens is we acknowledge that there's a legitimate hurt. We, we, we recognize that there's been some pain in our relationship. We recognize that someone needs to be forgiven. But the second thing it does is this. It lets the person who hurt us, it, it, it lets them know that we're not going to hold it against them. All is forgiven. I, I love the way Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 through 32 says, it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. If you've got this in your relationship, you want to know what the secret is to get rid of these things, it comes in the next part of the verse. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, the word forgive, it means to pardon it means to restore. It means to let go. And so the question is not whether or not we should forgive. The real question is, how fast can I forgive? How fast can I let it go? You see, the longer we hold on to the hurt, the, 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 the longer we believe that we are right, the longer it's going to take to restore the relationship. And, and you might be sitting here and you might be thinking, but, but, but Pastor, you, you, you don't know my situation. You, you don't know what they did. They don't deserve forgiveness. And may, maybe they don't deserve it. But that's why Scripture says to forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, none of us are perfect. All of us make mistakes. We all blow it. And what we're all in need of is huge amounts of grace and forgiveness. And so we want to definitely, when our spouse hurts us, we want to be ready to say all is forgiven. See, forgiveness is never about giving somebody what they deserve. It's about giving them something that they don't deserve. But when we extend forgiveness, the healing process can begin and we can become closer than ever before. We gotta forgive each other. Let's stand. I know uh, for some of you, uh, this may have been a difficult lesson. We tried to have some fun with it, but I know that there are some people in the room and you're, you're going through some conflict right now with your spouse. It's um, not going well at your home. There's some real hurt and maybe there's some huffing and maybe there's some stuffing going on. And, I just want to let you know today that I believe that God gives us everything that we need. God gives every couple everything that they need to have the Christ-like love that's described in 1 Corinthians 13. We just have to be willing to go through the process in order to get there. But love 
doesn't mean that we are never angry or that we never get wronged. Love simply means that we're not easily angered and we keep no record of the wrong. And so I believe that with God's help, you can have the kind of relationship that he wants for you. And so if you're there, I'm going to pray for you in just a minute. But I, I, I want to let each one of you know that God cares about you and that he loves you. And I think the way that we get to a place where we have a successful relationship and marriage is by surrendering our lives to God. We just surrender every area to God. The hurt, the pain, the anger, we, we just give it all to God and we try and do things his way. But I, I recognize that maybe some of you are here and you've never done that. You've never accepted what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You've never made him your Lord and Savior and friend. And so you need that help. You need the Holy Spirit to help you. And so if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to come down front. Our uh, prayer partners will be right down front. They'd be glad to lead you through that decision. Or if you just need prayer for your relationship or anything going on in your life, come down front. I'd be happy to pray for you. Let's bow together. God, we come to you right now, and um, I'm thankful for your word, and, and I'm thankful for the example of David and Michael. And I guess some people would say, well, that's not a good example. But sometimes by looking at bad examples, we, we can see what we need to change in our own hearts. But I'm, I'm thankful so much for your word that tells us exactly how we can overcome conflict in our lives. And God, I know that it begins because we have a relationship with you. And so I just pray that we would just follow you, that we would surrender our lives to you, that we do everything in our power to allow you to just guide and direct our steps in every area of our lives, including our marriages. And God, right now, I pray for anyone, if they're hurting, if they're struggling, if there's conflict in a marriage, God, that you would supernaturally come in and that you would help them to, to see one another, not as the, the enemy, they would attack the problem and not one another. God, we're thankful for Jesus who makes it all possible. It's in his name I pray and ask all these things. Amen. We are so glad you've joined us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, we encourage you to follow, share it with friends and family, or let us know by tagging us at New Hope Church TV on social media. We would love to connect with you. Thanks for listening.